The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Next Generation episode, The Big Goodbye. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. Goodbye. I mean, hi, Dom. <laughs> you said that at the end. And Jimmy Aiken. <laughs> hey, Jimmy. Goodbye, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a, like a comedy bit. Uh, remember to like the secrets of star trek on facebook where we're at facebook.com slash starquest media retweet us on twitter i'm gonna say it till the day i die uh, or as long as it exists at sqpn and leave us comments wherever you find us on social media we love to hear from you and i want to tell you about another show on the starquest network you are sure to enjoy called the secrets of technology which you can find wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash technology so we are talking about The Big Goodbye, which is a first season TNG episode, yeah. episode 12, <laughs> with all the attendant problems that it brings. Uh, but uh, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens in this story? This week, the Enterprise is on its way to establish diplomatic relations with a murderous race of highly persnickety insects known as the Harodans. The Harodans will talk only to Picard as the captain of the ship and they will fly into a murderous rage if he pronounces even one sound in the greeting in their language wrong. Picard is stressing over how to pronounce the greeting. Duh. So <laughs> Troy recommends that he take a break on the newly upgraded holodeck, and he decides to play in a detective story featuring Dixon Hill, who is really a knockoff of the real-world fictional character, there's an oxymoron for you, <laughs> Philip Marlowe. So we get an homage to the 1941 film The Maltese Falcon. Picard, Dr. Crusher, Data, and a 20th century historian named Whalen go into the program, but the insect Harodin jerks scan the Enterprise, causing the very first holodeck malfunction. And one of the characters in the story based on Peter Lorre's Joel Cairo character from the Maltese Falcon, mm -hmm. shoots the historian Whalen and injures him nearly fatally, giving us our first safeties-off holodeck situation. This leads our heroes to discover that they can't leave the holodeck to keep the drama going. But soon, Wes and Geordi are able to restore proper holodeck function. As this is happening, Picard has been explaining to the episode Big Bad Cyrus Redblock, a character based on actor Sidney Greenstreet from the Maltese Falcon, that he, Picard, comes from another world of fabulous riches. It is a world that contains objects of much more value than the item that uh, Redblock is seeking, a coded reference to the Maltese Falcon itself. When Wes and Geordi get the doors open, Redblock and Leech go in search of more valuable treasures in this greater world that Picard has spoken of, but since they're holodeck characters, the psychoplasm that they're made of starts to melt. I mean, they disintegrate upon leaving the holodeck. Data then takes the historian Whalen to sickbay to treat his almost mortal wound, and Picard stays, to say, stays behind to say goodbye to his cop friend McNary, giving us the title's reference to the big goodbye. Afterwards, Picard comes to the bridge and pronounces the Haradan greeting perfectly, 
Opening a new era between the Haradans and the Federation. The end. So, Father Corey, what'd you think of this one? Well, this is the one that set the template for the crew is trapped on the holodeck and is exactly like every the crew is trapped on the holodeck episode. The 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 film noir theme, you know, the 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 Dixon Hill theme is is a great one. I mean, it is it is very much beloved by many fans for good reason. It's it's a great theme and it's a great holodeck story as far as that's concerned. But it's still a Picard and crew are trapped on the holodeck story. How about you, Jimmy? Of all the bad episodes in season one, this is one of the less bad ones. Um, <laughs> it, uh, it, you know, the Dixon Hill stuff is there. It's okay. It's not really a story. We don't, if you don't know the Maltese Falcon, you're not going to know what's going on. Mm. And we never get any payoff. That story doesn't resolve. You know, the the villain, uh, Cyrus Redblock, walks off the holodeck and disintegrates with his Peter Laurie knockoff. And and actually, the big goodbye, is, even though they explain it at kind of at the end as Picard saying goodbye to his holodeck cop friend, yeah, no, that's not what the big goodbye would be. The, the mm-hmm. title is a fusion of the big sleep and the long goodbye. In both of those, the big sleep and the long goodbye are references to death, yep. which is a common theme in, you know, dime novel detective stories in, and in film noir th- themed movies. So the big goodbye should be death, um, right. but it's not. And yeah, this episode is so first season. <laughs> it, I, I can cut it some slack, even though it's... It, I mean, it became the wellspring of holodeck cliches, but it is the wellspring. It's not just a repeating mm. of the cliches, so right. that it does involve some creativity, and so I want to give it credit for that. It's not this episode's fault that later episodes knocked you know knocked it off so egregiously in just lifting wholesale plot elements from it. So I can give this one some credit. It's okay, but wow is the writing stiff, and wow is the acting stiff. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, as I approached it, I, I realized that, yeah, this is the first of a lot of different start things that would become common, become tropes in, in you know, uh, next-gen era Star Trek. And, you know, it's the first holo novel. It's the first, you know, it's the first of everything. And it's so uh, clearly... Most of this episode is clearly playing with the idea of what would it be like to be in this space that couldn't be anything. Mm-hmm. And as someone who has seen hundreds and hundreds of Star Trek episodes, uh, it, I felt it was I loved it the first time I saw it, you, you know, 40 years ago. It felt a little boring this time because mm-hmm. it felt just like, OK, let's get past the novelty of the holodeck and tell a story. I know. They just gush about it so much. It's yep. like, come on. Yeah. Well, they uh, there's a couple of th- things that they do here that they later get rid of in holodeck stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the how the characters inside the holodeck. They notice when you're out when you're not wearing period appropriate costume, mm, right. and uh, and and that's and they're very much aware of the way you talk. And um, whereas later on, holodeck characters will ignore when the crew members talk about things that they w- shouldn't be aware of, and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, right. 
So that sort of stuff is present here. And present here is lipstick that does not dissolve once you get off yeah. the holodeck because the knockoff of Mrs. Wonderly from mm-hmm. the Maltese Falcon kisses Picard square on the kisser and he doesn't know it, but he's he's walking around on the on the Enterprise with lipstick all over his face. No one points no. it out to him either. <laughs> no. Well, he is the captain. Do you really want to point? Yeah. Uh, sir. Yeah. But, uh, it, it captain, was, you got something a little bit. Uh, it, from it, lunch, it was maybe? fun to see the. It was fun to see the crew members kind of turn and look as he walks by. But <laughs> does the um, captain have lipstick on? <laughs> yeah. An- another thing that they they said here that you never see again is uh, I think it was Jordy uh, says program abort will cause the people to vanish. Right. Yeah. Right. And of course, we yeah. never see that again. We see times when the program crashes. And all you see is the hollow grid. Yeah. Right. Which is the way you would want it to be, because I'm not getting in something that I vanish if it crashes. Exactly. (laughs) I I know computers. Computers can crash. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to die when my computer crashes. Your your, your data might crash, but at least you don't disappear. Uh, Right. One thing you mentioned uh, about how the the actors were very wooden, you you know, it was very much a first season acting, except Brent Spiner. Brent Spiner had fun with this. You know, he did. Where yeah. he's playing the, you want me to rush, rough him up, boss? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He gets the voice, the, he, the character. He did yeah. better with acting, but he was still given wooden dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the other uh, thing that we have here is um, that flirting with Picard and Crusher. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that again. When he first invites her to go onto the holodeck and see it with him when they're at yep. that briefing. She's thinking, oh, I'm being asked out on a date. And I'm like, in front of everyone, including your yeah. son? That's that's weird and awkward. And then he, we can invite Waylon, too. It's like, oh, I guess not a date. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, and there's a scene later in the holodeck where she comes to the police station where he's been interrogated. And, and he's like, okay, let's get out of here. And she says, wait, can we see your office? And she's like, oh, yeah, why don't you and I go to my office? And they're building it up as this big romantic thing. And then Waylon and Data invite themselves along too, and Car- Picard and Beverly are both clearly disappointed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so there's a word that I will not say for what Waylon and Data yeah. just did, but yeah. Um, but yeah, so they did the that ni- word. The, the nice yeah. term is third wheel. They were the third yeah, they, wheel. They, yeah. they became the third wheel. Well, and the, so. That whole flirting relationship thing was much more prevalent in that in the first season. They were really, mm-hmm. I feel like they were really going to play Build this up, up, yeah, to and, something. And then eventually they they kind of it never really well, went away, but it got backburnered. Well, well they, she she left. She uh, got Beverly fired. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when she came back in the third season, that they just kind of dropped it, or like you said, they really put it backburner. Yeah, I mean, it opens up story possibilities if Picard and Crusher aren't attached to each other. You know, that if you want the captain to be able to, you know, have relationships and stuff, and you know, and have the doctor, I don't know, um, meet her uh, grandmother's ghost boyfriend. Yeah, <laughs> or or have a trill boyfriend. Yeah, or have a trill yeah. boyfriend, or yeah, the various the various the uh, things she has. Um, I I was amused uh, from a computer science standpoint of data reading all of the Dixon Hill novels instead of just mm-hmm. my Kindle can uh, absorb stuff faster yeah. than yeah. data can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just it, it should be like computer download all Dixon Hill novels to my brain. Yeah, Wi Fi wasn't invented yet. The Enterprise didn't have Wi Fi yet. Yeah. yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, the other thing interesting was how Picard was strangely lacking in knowledge of the 20th century concepts. Like, 
automobiles, city blocks, Halloween. Um, these are mm-hmm. things that, you know, later on characters will, they'll, they'll have, they'll, re- they'll remember stuff from the 20th century a lot more readily. And maybe, you know, if it is, what what is it? 400 years in the, our future. I don't remember necessarily things f- that are everyday stuff from 400 years ago in say Britain, it's but the 1600s. Yeah. Right. Uh, now, I, immediately, you know, again, I, I've not seen as much TOS, but in City of Edge for, of Forever, didn't they kind of do that, too, when they go back to the 30s? Kind of like, oh, yeah, this is a 1930s transportation. and I think it was playing on that, yeah. They always do a so, little bit of that in time travel episodes just to for color to make it, oh, yeah, our characters are fishes out of water. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of makes sense for this as well, where... Mm-hmm. Okay, this is, you know, 400 years in the future or whatever it is, you know. So not, it's, do they they have, don't know everything that's going yeah. on, so. Do they not have city blocks in San Francisco in, tw- in the 25th century? <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I was struck, well, this was still the 24th, but well, yeah, yeah, 24th, yeah. I, I, was, I was struck by Picard not knowing what Halloween was. Yeah. Um, I was, I, and, and I was like, would he really not know what that is? Um. Because it's such a major part of our culture now, you'd think he would have heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the I was I was I was interested to see like Beverly does not know how high heels work, and she like stumbles over a step walking in high heels. Right. She she also does not know feminine protocol, and she's sitting in the police station next to a woman who's clearly a prostitute. Yep. And she's imitating the prostitute's behavior, not realizing what the prostitute <laughs> is. <laughs> Until the cop comes and takes her away. She's like, ew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, well, they kind of played on that, too, though, where they're yeah. just having, kind of having fun with the, the yeah. scenario. And, I, I, you know, and mm-hmm. let's be honest, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. If, if we had a, something the equivalent of a holodeck, I, I think we would kind of do that, too. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and then the makeup thing, too, where she was like uh, copying the, uh, the other woman with uh, putting the makeup on uh, that, mm-hmm. that, too. Um, yeah, and yeah. she was like clearly discovering for a first time what a compact is. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's like pulls one out. She sees the other woman using one. She looks in her purse. She finds one. She opens it up, and it's oh, that's what this is. And then it's got face powder in it, which she accidentally blows. Right, right. I mean, as we know from uh, vo- uh, Voyage Home, uh, makeup in the future is very different, right? I mean, isn't that the one well, where the she's changing her nail color with the tip of a pen? Uh, the I, woman that I don't recall, but I, I assume know. that they're wearing like nanotechnology skin tattoos that they can readjust or to some, anything they want. <laughs> yeah, some yeah. little hypo spray type thing. They just kind of spray over their face and it adds the everything is needed. It's like an Instagram filter in real life. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So uh, one of the things I was uh, kind of struck me as a bit of a plot hole was if relationships, if relations with the Jarada, the Harada, not Jarada, Harada, it's spelled with a J, but it's Harada. If it's so tricky, then Riker's first contact with them, where he's like rude, to we will them, kill you all now. Yeah, yeah, it should have been disastrous and sent him back another twenty years. I, yeah. I just think that's kind of like uh, the. I don't think Riker, you're going by diplomatic protocol in this in this uh, uh, situation. <laughs> that, that was kind of weird. Um, uh, also, th- this was great. The comms aren't working. Riker to holodeck silence. Riker to holodeck. Yeah, Riker, yell louder. Maybe they can't hear you. Of course. (laughs) I just think it's such a natural human reaction. Like, oh, they can't hear me. I should yell louder over to the comm system. That was was very funny. Where's that microphone at? I need to talk closer to it. (laughs) Um, 
So safety oh, protocols. Oh, I, also, I also like um, the cop who starts hitting on Beverly. Yeah. Gives her a stick of gum that's in a, in a, in a wrapper. <laughs> yeah. And she's clever enough. She realizes to unwrap it. And then, she, and she apparently recognizes this is something I'm supposed to eat. So she puts it in her mouth, chews it, and swallows it immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she puts it in like sideways, which I think is yeah. a great little yeah. uh, Gates McFadden yeah. did a great job there, like making it look like someone who doesn't know how to chew gum the way they would put it in, like, ah, like big as wide awkward mouth. as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was good. Uh, so. So the holodeck safety protocols is not yet a thing, apparently, uh, or they, they don't get mentioned here anyway, but they don't they the, don't say anything about it, that there are protocols that keep you from getting killed. And that's obviously right. you, you can imagine after this episode, they kind of, went, you know, we need to make sure that this isn't an issue every time we use the holodeck. So, <laughs> right. They, they probably made a, a large amendment to the writer's Bible for TNG about holodecks and what's allowed. Yep. Uh, and so they, so Whaling gets shot with, I like that his reaction is, well, first he falls to the ground and Beverly's like, Oh, very nice. And she claps at his acting quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, no, he's really been shot when they see the blood. Um, and his disbelieving reaction of, but they're not real. <laughs> I would probably react well, that way too. They're real enough. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Whalen for a minute because he's he's one of our guest star characters that we will never see again. Yeah, <laughs> and um, his he's he's also a superfluous, unnecessary character, and it's completely ridiculous that <laughs> right. that, that the Enterprise in the 24th century would have a 20th century earth historian aboard not just yeah. they should have just said get that historian whalen right if they wanted to have a historian but that he's a 20th century historian on a spaceship that is not assigned to time travel to the 20th century <laughs> is completely ridiculous that's like having a having having someone on on the enterprise to go explore space who is a who is a third century BC historian? Mm-hmm. Right. You know why do you need that on the Enterprise? Why should that be taken up a berth of one yeah. of the thousand people on board? Well, and you know they could very easily solve that. All they have to say is, "Hey, isn't Lieutenant Whalen a twentieth century history buff?" Yeah, that's exactly my headcanon for this. Is that mm-hmm. he, what he meant? You know, he meant get that guy I know who's really into twentieth century. history. He's down in engineering, but he's he loves twentieth century history or whatever. Right. Yeah, and that would be okay. But even then, we really don't need that character. His only function is to get shot. Yep. Yeah, and and that could be performed by any of the main cast. He's a he's a red shirt basically yeah. in this mm-hmm. in this case. Uh, yeah. Was he it, wearing a red tie? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> His shirt did become red. Uh, yeah. but, um, yeah, it was, it, it was interesting. I also liked the, um, the Felix Leach character in mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the actor, Harvey Jason, does a really good Peter Laurie semi impression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was yeah, pretty good. He, he's not using Peter Laurie's accent. No. Um, but he, he conveys the same kind of emotion. Yeah. As as Peter Laurie's character in the Maltese Falcon, um, at one point uh, Picard punches him, and it's like, "You struck me! How dare you!" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that was very good. Well, even even the way his voice sounds sounds very much like Peter Laurie. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, he's got that nasally sound. Uh, I got to tell you, I love the actor who plays Cyrus Redblock, uh, Lawrence Tierney. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I've seen him in a lot of things. He was in um, the Tarantino movie. Um, was it Reservoir Dogs? Uh, I haven't seen that one. There's a. Uh, it's a very violent, profane movie, but there's yeah. a the opening scene where he's organizing a heist that that is at the center of that movie, and he gives this this long speech. It's a one shot, you know, Tarantino being fancy, uh, but he's such a great menacing character. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a great presence, and it's he's got this interesting presence here. Was was Sidney Greenstreet in Maltese Falcon? Was he also erudite like this, like yes. using big words? Yeah. And he, he's very much like. Like uh, Cyrus Redblock is in this. So in Maltese Falcon, uh, Sidney Greenstreet, the actor, portrays a character named Casper Gutman, and um, Gutman is is very suave and intellectual, and he is a villain, but he's he has a sense of humor. He he's amiable. You know, um, he starts getting Humphrey Bogart drunk. And it's it's like I never trust a man who won't drink because he doesn't trust himself enough, you know. Mm. And and uh, and you know, at one point Humphrey Bogart catches him doing something. It's like, well, we must have our little joke, you know. Um, yes. So he's he's like that. Um, but then he he will do bad things yeah. uh, if if the situation calls for it. But he is sort of the you know monster claw in the velvet glove. Right approach. Yeah, well, go ahead. W- one thing I like with Cyrus Le- Redblock, they give him one fascinating line. It's half genius and half lame. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point, um, the uh, the characters once they once once Redshirt has been shot, the other characters are like, "What are you going to do? Kill us?" And Redblock says, "Senseless killing is immoral." Okay, that's genius. Mm-hmm. To have in the script to have the villain say senseless killing is immoral. The inadequate follow up to that is, but killing for a purpose is quite often ingenious. Okay, ingenious is not the right word. Right. Yeah. Um, they needed to say something else. Um, like killing with a purpose can be justified, or killing with a purpose can be useful, or something like that. But I like the fa- I really like the fact they have the villain recognizing senseless killing is immoral. Mm-hmm. Right, it makes the 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 villain multifaceted. Well, then, he's yeah, very much uh, you know the the gentleman mobster. Mm-hmm. Right, you know he's very much a gentleman, and he you know he's he's got his code of morality. Now it might not be the Christian code of morality, but he's got his code of morality, and he lives by it. Mm-hmm. I really feel like a modern version of this same character is uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin in the Marvel mm-hmm. uh, series, the MCU, uh, yes. where he's very. He's sort of like this restrained violence. He's this very violent person inside this exterior that has rules and disciplines and expectations of behavior of others. And, and it's it's kind of an interesting, I mean, it's and similar it's, dress to he dresses yeah. with the suit and all the that. bald and everything. It's, it's a very similar idea uh, This uh, as a, a villain. I, I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of uh, one of my favorite bits of this story was a bit of physical comedy uh with that that uh picard and data do which is uh after whalen's been shot crusher calls for more light so data sees a lamp picks it up and starts to carry it over as a light source yeah. mm-hmm. doesn't realize it gets unplugged and he's like staring at it like waiting for it to, like shaking it and picard 
plugs uh, knowing just plugs it in in another outlet nearby and it goes on again and it's just just uh, no one says anything yeah. but it's just this yeah. funny little bit i really like that i just uh, it's a little bit of slapstick type comedy you know vaudeville yeah. type comedy yeah. business as they call it in acting it's a nice little yeah. bit of business yes yes uh I, f- I really feel like brent spiner did a lot of that in tng where he had little bits of you know, just a little bit of background, funny thing well, of and, data. And when the light turned on, data looked pleased with himself. <laughs> right, that right. he figured it out, not realizing, of course, that he didn't. Right, right. I mean, just like I was talking about last time when, on Insurrection, where, you know, the the smooth as Riker's face was smooth as a android's bottom. And he just, like, touches it, and then just kind of shakes his head. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I like that little bit of uh, unspoken comedy there. Mm-hmm. I, I remember seeing few years ago, you know, where Brent Biner was at a, a convention somewhere and he talks, talked about how, you know, in the first season, you know, data was, you know, he was extracted. This is how data was going to be. And he kept kind of pushing back on that. Mm-hmm. And that's how, he, so he really influenced how data developed by bringing in the humor, by bringing in kind of the silliness that he would do. Right. Um, Cause an Android character can be really stiff and boring if you yeah, don't which introduce she was season more. one like yeah. previous android season. characters on other shows <laughs> like chameleon uh, yeah. <laughs> uh another interesting go well, ahead jimmy well i was going to just mention the plot of the maltese falcon because this you won't really get it if you don't know the maltese falcon in this we see this lady show up i forget what she calls herself she wants to be hired by dixon hill um, and then later we meet this leech character, and then eventually we meet the big bad, uh, Cyrus Redblock. So, and the, and Cyrus Redblock, the initial lady has been killed. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a question of did Dixon Hill kill her? And that's what the authorities are investigating. So he's kind of caught between trying to manage the cops and trying to manage the villains. And the villains are after something they just refer to as the item or the object, which they think that uh, Dixon Hill has, but he really doesn't. Okay, so that's kind of the Maltese Falcon. In the Maltese Falcon, you have uh, Philip Marlowe, and I'm going to try to not confuse it with the big sleep. Um, (laughs) But you have Philip Marlowe as a San Francisco detective, a woman going by multiple names, including Wonderly and Shaughnessy approaches him asking to be hired. She is concerned for her life. And she's being chased by Joel Cairo, played by uh, Peter Lorre, and Casper Gutman, played by Sidney Greenstreet. Mm-hmm. They're after something that is referred to as the item on occasion. What it is is the Maltese Falcon. The Maltese Falcon, as we're informed in a title card at the beginning of the movie, is a jewel-encrusted Falcon. It's a statuette. It's a statue of a falcon that the Knights Templar had made. And it's this fabulous art treasure that has been lost to history. But it's been discovered. And now it's, it's, it's thought that it's here in San Francisco. And Brit- Mrs. Wonderly slash O'Shaughnessy is trying to get it. She does not get murdered. And also, um, Cairo, who is working for Gutman, they're trying to get it too, and 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 Philip Marlowe, the Humphrey Bogart character, is caught between the police and the bad guys in the same way. It eventually turns out this is their second attempt 
to get the Maltese Falcon, and that Shaughnessy has previously worked with Gutman and um, and Cairo before. In fact, there is it's in, it's it's not it, it's insinuated that. In, in fact, Cairo, who is established in the movie as wearing some kind of flowery cologne, um, mm-hmm. he's gay. And there was a previous incident in Constantinople where they almost got the Falcon, but Wonderly and Cairo both tried to woo a hotel guy <laughs> into getting them the Falcon, and neither one of them could make it work. And and so they kind of resent each other for that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it eventually turns out that Wonderly was complicit in the murder of Humphrey Bogart's partner. And at the end of the film, they're able to get what they think is the Falcon. But it's been covered over in like enamel um, Mm -hmm. to disguise it. And it should be this jewel-encrusted treasure underneath. Well, they start picking at the enamel, and it's a lead statue. Hmm. And so so Gutman and Casper assume they've been tricked again. They go off to find the real statue, and Bridget O'Shaughnessy is left with Humphrey Bogart, and they've got a thing going by this point. But Humphrey Bogart tells Bridget O'Shaughnessy, I'm not taking the fall for you. You killed my partner when your partner died. He was a fool, but when your partner mm-hmm. dies, you're supposed to do something. I'm not taking the fall for you. You're going to go to prison, and I'll be waiting for you in 20 years. <laughs> and as for what the what the Falcon is, this it's just a lead statue. It's the stuff that dreams are made of. Mm-hmm. So that's the plot of the Maltese Falcon that they're drawing on in this episode. Mm. Yep. Spoilers for a 70, 60 year old movie. No, just hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not up on great the classics, movie. time to get up on them. That's great, right. great That's movie. Right. It's 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 one of the, one of Bogart's greatest. It's one of the best movies of all time. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely. A uh, couple of interesting notes in this one. Uh, the, Picard looks at a newspaper on this, you know, when, in the holiday mm-hmm. San Francisco. Dimaggio streak reaches thirty seven. Uh, that occurred on uh, June twenty fifth, nineteen forty one. So we have a date for yep. the when this occurs uh well, but we're told that uh an unnamed baseball player data says will break dimaggio's record for longest consecutive hitting streak and he'll be a member of the london kings that gets paid mm-hmm. off in deep space nine buck Bukai. buck Bukai of the london kings is the one who speaking, breaks it speaking of ds9 another thing gets paid off in ds9 the newspaper vendor is the actor dick miller Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he's been in many things like he was in Gremlins and things like that. Oh, yeah. He was in DS9's episode two parter past tense. He was the leader of the hostage takers for, during the Bell Rebellion. The Bell Riots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. Or riots. Yeah. Yeah. So right. he, we see him again. Yep. Same, same actor. Interesting. Interesting. A uh, couple of holodeck related things uh, in this Cyrus Redblock and uh, Felix Leach. They don't begin to dissolve until after they're fully off the holodeck, but presumably beyond the range of the hollow emitters, mm-hmm. which we will find them in the future. Uh, that that changes over time. Although, um, doesn't this also happen to Moriarty too, where he gets off the holodeck a bit? Well, he that's a trick. He's not really yeah. off the holodeck. He's making the holodeck make it look like he's off the holodeck. That's right. That's right. Okay. Right. 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 That's uh, yeah. Because l- later on, you see him where like I think there was one one character who sticks his hand through, and of course the hand cuts off right at the door. Right. Right. Until he pulls it back. Yes. 
Uh, the other thing is, is the only time that the holodeck has two exits. Yeah. That confused me a lot the first time I, I watched this because, like, mm-hmm. the door finally opens and they walk out. I'm like, where's Jordy and yeah. Wesley and the others who were there? Right. Uh, so very, that, very noticeable. Yeah. <laughs> Although earlier data, like Picard sends data out to see if he could find the door out in the hall. Like, there's a door in the hall, too. It's kind of funny. But mm-hmm. Now that we, you know, <laughs> again, familiar with holodecks, that's a. And it feels f- funny and weird. Yep. Yeah, and I think they have the two doors in it just for dramatic purposes in this episode. So they don't have to have the motion of because they want it to end with Picard saying goodbye to McNary. Mm. And it's an it's an effective goodbye. Um, you know, uh, McNary, who has come to realize I'm a holodeck character and my mm-hmm. wife and kids are holodeck characters. Um, says, tell me something, Dix. When you go, will this world still exist? Will my wife and kids still be waiting at, waiting for me at home? You know, which is, I, I'd want to know that too. Right. And, and Picard says, I honestly don't know. Well, okay, rationally, the answer should be a flat no. It's not going to exist. Yeah. But yeah. Moriarty. So, yeah. um, <laughs> so, you know, there's some justification there. And that's how they want this to end. That's the big goodbye for the episode. But the problem is that's not what should happen. You've got a wounded guy. As soon as the doors open, you know, uh, Wesley and Jordy ought to be there. You ought to have Data pick the guy up, carry him to sickbay, or just beam him to sickbay. Picard should be going with his injured crew member, not standing, staying behind mm-hmm. talking to fantasy characters. Right, right. And, and and oh, by the way, the wife and kids probably don't even exist. Yeah. They're just, you know, he in his in memory. Background. Yeah. Background. Effort. I do like, uh, although it doesn't make sense within the show, I do like the, the as he leaves the holodeck, the lights dim, it goes dark. It's very much a stage moment. It's like a play. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, they're trying to play up the idea that the holodeck is like a, being in a play. And so I, I, I can, I can take that for like a little dramatic license to do that. Uh, so one thing that kind of has always bothered me. So after all of this anticipation, this very important meeting with this alien race, uh, we're going to reestablish diplomatic relations with this very touchy species of people that and we never we, hear of again. Nope. Well, we like he gives the greeting, and it's like, ooh, that was uh that was uh, really stressful. All right, bye. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, what's the diplomatic relations? Are you got to talk to them again. Like, what's good? It was very strange that they just left at the end of it. Uh, so that was my my reaction at the end. Uh, Father Corey, anything else you want to say about this one? Um, well, you've mentioned his name like three times, but Wesley is, the, of course, the super nerd engineer who's memorized everything about the holodeck. This is one of the episodes why, why he was so disliked by fans, because he was the super nerd. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. that's and we see LaForge kind of moving into his engineering mm-hmm. position. Yeah, right. Yeah. He- because that yeah that you would normally have the chief engineer be the one down there and I think it just naturally well, fits this is where they had kind of the rotating chief en- engineers too so right I think Picard got sick of the uh, chief engineers and Jordy you're it anything else uh, nope uh, Jimmy how about you nope. Very good. All right. Then uh, we'd like to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode for us. 
So that's it from us this time. What do you think of The Big Goodbye? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Send an email to trek at sqpn.com or visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Or you can watch The Secrets of Star Trek on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia and leave a comment there. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Deep Space Nine episode, Progress. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, live long and prosper, and if I leave town, the town leaves with me. <laughs> and Father Cory Stika, thank you as well. Thank you, hi and goodbye. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Oh, thank- hello, I must be going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, it was raining in the city by the bay. A hard rain. Hard enough to wash the slime. Data. <laughs>